Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Mind Whisperer for Tuesday, March 5th, 2013. My name is Michael Gordon. Welcome to the program. You're listening to a program about spiritual psychology in daily life. And uh, we've been on the air now for a few months, and we are currently at about 2,500 listens to the program, so I'm delighted to be able to bring you this program, and um, it's wonderful to see so much interest. So, thanks for listening in, and if you're listening into the archive show, um, thanks for tuning in afterwards. And please continue to uh, spread the word about the program. You know, link to our Blog Talk Radio um, page, and there's Twitter and Facebook information there as well and uh, as always you can call into the program at any time and bring up any topic that you'd like to discuss you don't have to feel confined to the program uh, topic at hand but today we are talking about something in particular the title of which is winning without fighting there is no enemy now as listeners of the show may be familiar, I am an Aikido teacher and practitioner, going back some 20 years now. And Aikido is, uh, we hesitate to say a martial art, because martial implies that it's an art of fighting or warfare. And the origins of Aikido as self-defense from, from Japan, from the Budo, what's called the, the um, uh, Budo uh, warriorship training, battle training, if you will, but warriorship really in terms of perfecting the self. And from the warriorship, or Budo, which means path of being a warrior, uh, we come to understand Aikido as the culmination of the spiritual understanding of the founder, who was called O-sensei, the great teacher, um, Morihei Ueshiba, who has long since passed on now, and was really quite generally considered to be probably the greatest martial artist who ever lived. Particularly if you have any understanding of the depth of what martial arts is trying to teach us, which is about perfecting ourselves. So the spiritual underpinnings of Aikido Aiki means to harmonize one's energy with that of the world or the universe, to be connected to the universe. And um, this brings us to you know a, a much more profound perspective on how to live in a world of conflict, because it really is in the relative reality of 
our world that we experience conflict in nature and in the universe. Things are constantly in motion, and there is a yin-yang. There is a push-pull. There's a balance. From chaos comes order. From order comes chaos. Or as in the teachings of uh, emptiness from Buddhism, they say form is emptiness and emptiness is form. There's an inherent interdependence to all phenomena and all um, all things that take place in the universe. So how do we bring this back down to a practical level in terms of relating to one another and trying to find a way, as the title suggests today, of of not fighting? So part of this approach is to be able to understand where does conflict begin? Now, I was watching a program last night with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Tibet. The spiritual leader of the Tibetan people, I should say, and Tibetan Buddhism. He, he lives in exile in Dharamsala, India. And the Dalai Lama was making the point about secular that Buddhism, that his approach to teaching is secular teaching. In other words, it's a non-sectarian, it is non-religious. And he makes the point that secularism, or what's also called pluralism, uh, has existed for a long time, and in particular he referred to an Indian teacher whose name I didn't catch, uh, who was presenting the, the viewpoint that the idea of secularism is such that I may disagree with your point of view, with your opinion, with your philosophy. But that does not mean I cannot respect you as a person. So despite all of our differences, they are really secondary. The primary, uh, the primary relationship is to the interdependence. And the interdependence that we have as one human living family on this planet is that we all share the same common situation. And that is we are all really aiming to be happy, to fulfill ourselves and to be happy in our lives. And so this understanding of our common situation is very important because from that place, if we remind ourselves to respect the person and maybe disagree um, with their viewpoint, brings us back to that root connection. And the second aspect of what the Dalai Lama was talking about is that there, that the our intrinsic nature is to not only be happy but also to survive and to protect. It starts with this, the instinct to survive and protect our own offspring, which is, a, in a way, a very selfless thing to do. And he gives several examples of that. Um, but the point being that it's not something that has to be or is the property of any one religious school of thought. That nobody has the singular truth 
or means of accomplishing uh, enlightenment or spiritual truth. That this is something that's inherent in all beings, and he was commenting, you know, from his own observations in life as a younger man, um, even butterflies. That the, the butterflies will lay eggs that in clusters, so that when the offspring are born, the caterpillars that emerge will be tight knit. And if there's an if there's a, an intrusion upon their uh, territory, that they will collect respond. This, this comes back to the interdependence of, of being. And the Dharma makes another really fascinating point uh, related to research and saying that there was a medical researcher he met in the United States whose research suggests that amongst the, the uh, population studies in the, in the study that those who predominantly use the language of I or me or myself are more prone to heart attack and heart disease than those who do not. And so he goes on to sort of make his own inferences from that, but I think that it's it's fairly common sense if you extrapolate uh, this kind of understanding uh, from from that research or through that research, and that is when we are so focused and we've talked about a lot this a lot in the program we're so focused with the concept and the singularity and the intransigence of i of of me, then we become very uh tunnel like television like of our uh, in our in our view of the world in our relationship to the world and this creates a great problem because um, we start to see the world through a very very tight iris and in fact it weakens our predilection to being simply a survival organism that is functioning from defense and the defense is not really necessarily of any real threat. It's the defense of the hurt and the perceived threat from this over-developed uh, or over-sensitized self, which doesn't actually exist. There is no fixed self. It is a concept within ourselves, an operating principle that becomes too dominant. And hence the... the uh, language used to describe today's program that how can there be self-defense if there's no opponent? So for the bird to be an opponent in our mind, there has to be someone who is the opposite to who we are. And when you really look at this closely from the viewpoint of understanding that all beings want happiness, all beings want to to maximize their their growth and their experience of life, then nobody really has the opposite point of view. Again, to use the language of the Dalai Lama, these constructs and these concepts and these um, ideological traps are secondary. The primary experience of human beings is 
one of um, desire for a happy life and a healthy life and to prosper and for our offspring to prosper. Um, I want to tell a story about from a friend. I think I may have told this on the show before. Uh, a friend told me the story of who this is from a, a yoga instructor who's telling a story told to her by a fellow yoga instructor or yogi. And this yogi was saying that uh, he had taught a class and one of the students came up to him at the end of his class, not a regular student, and and said, uh, you know, I had a real problem with such and such in, during the class. And I, I don't recall what the details were. But something to the effect of, you know, I was uncomfortable or I didn't like the way you, you know, pushed us through this or whatever it was. And the teacher said, well, I understand that you feel that way. However, it's unfortunate you've come up to me at the end of the class because there's not much I can do besides listening to you now to remedy the situation. If you'd come to me in the middle of the class, then I could have adjusted and, and accommodated you and um, you'd given some attention to your concern. But the, the potent part of the story is that in the telling of the story to this other yoga teacher, this fellow said, people with unhealthy boundaries are not safe to be around. I think this is such a fascinating idea. We tend to think of boundaries as something that's going to protect us from our own vulnerability. That that your fragile sense of self has to be defended. I mean, if it wasn't fragile and there, and there wasn't something you felt fearful of in the first place, then there would be no impulse to defend it. So the very nature, the very notion that, that um, we are defensive means that there's something to defend and that you're not operating from a strong sense, core sense of self. So we tend to think of boundaries as I have this soft core that is vulnerable, that needs to be defended at all costs, and we need to put up boundaries. And what this teacher was saying, to my mind, uh, through the story, is that when other people are operating in that way, they're not safe to be around. Now, we can see this in the Aikido practice. In Aikido, um, pardon me, I have a bit of spring allergy coming out now here in, in uh, Vancouver, the early pollen release. Um, on the mat, when our, when our what's called our yuki attacks, we're teaching them in our in our training to be very what we call mind body coordinated. So something that people experience in yoga is to be coordinated in their mind and body. That means they're very stable, they're very calm, they're very relaxed, and they move in a very fluid way, not reactive. And that's a very difficult opponent to encounter because they're not going to be easily moved in terms of their their stability of mind. What we call fudoshin in in um, Aikido terms, the, the immovability of the mind, that state of, of um, being very stable and calm. And so when we encounter the attacker on the mat, if somebody is very aggressive and very rigid and very forceful, they're very easily taken off their center by the very nature of the fact that they're not calm and not in mind and body and, and naturally 
stable. And it's easy to see someone get upended, you know. And you can see this in, in, in life, you know. Um, even in our man-made structures, or human-made structures, um, you know, buildings are made to flex. Here on the West Coast, we have, you know, earthquakes. And all our buildings, the newer buildings, are designed to have flex. If they're made too rigid, they crumble if, they're, if the ground shakes. So they have to be able to flex. So we have some give and some flexibility. And this is also true in, in practice on the mat. So to be able to see, like this teacher was describing the student, that the other person is struggling with their unhealthy boundary, or let's not say unhealthy, but let's just say their unclear boundary, the uncertainty within themselves, that just because you're able to see that doesn't mean that you want to invite that in. It's okay to keep that at a safe distance. But even from a, that's still a relatively sort of self-defense kind of orientation. From a higher point of view, in terms of the more that you are operating from that calm center, then you can encounter this person and with some skillful means, uh, particularly in the Aikido practice, you can help resolve the situation. Your calmness, your centeredness, your your security in 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 that can help calm and diffuse the situation. And that's really what's at, at the heart of the training. Being able to neutralize the situation, and that requires that you have to overcome that aggression in your own mind. And this is what makes sort of a paradox in the Aikido training that it begins with yourself. You have to harmonize your own mind, body, spirit with the absolute. And we live in a, in a relative world. So the absolute is, is what it is. It's reality. It has no agenda. It just operates from natural principles. And so to, to not be predisposed to have an agenda means to be in accord with what's everything that is around you. And so it takes great honesty and sincerity and humility to be able to do that. To live your life from that place. But it has tremendous impact in terms of, ironically, a self-defense practice or training because it really does neutralize the energy of the other person's attack. And the physicality of that movement is such that you enter into the attack and you become... Join the center with the other person's center. You stabilize the other person, if you will. You become a calming influence to stabilize the situation and allow it to resolve or finish. Now, these are all difficult things to explain on the air, and they really are quite experiential. I think perhaps the best way to put this across is is a, a story told by one of the uh, prominent Western North American students who um, went over and was able to train very closely with O-sensei, with Ueshiba, uh, near the end of his life. And the fellow is a very interesting character. A lot has been written about him. He's written books, um, since passed on, 20, 30 years ago now. His name was Terry Dobson. 
and he was an ex-Marine and, you know, very interesting character. And I'm going to tell the story directly from his own words from, from one of his books. Uh, I believe the book he wrote is called um, Anger White Pajamas, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it could be Aikido in Everyday Life as well. Those might be both his books. I apologize for not having researched that ahead of time. But regardless, the story comes from him about his experience of um, coming from this fighting mind and really trying to take in the teacher's words to not to 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 cultivate more non-aggression and uh, to really work on that impulse in himself to to try and control another person and um, how difficult that is to embrace uh, with you know where he was coming from especially having been trained as a marine so here goes the story um, and you know Dobson went to Japan in 1961 um, Yoshiba died in 1969 so we have with him, progressed quite quite far. He was really taken under uh, O-sensei's wing. And in his own words, here's the story. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty. A few housewives with their kids in tow, some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the drab houses and dusty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened, and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore laborer's clothing, and he was big, drunk, and dirty, screaming. He swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that she was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled towards the other end of the car. The laborer aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman, but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, and in pretty good shape. I'd been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. I like to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. Trouble was, my martial skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train stations. My forebearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolute legitimate opportunity where I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. This is it, I said to myself, getting to my feet. People are in danger, and if I don't do something fast, they'll probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drug recognized a chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared, a foreigner. You need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart, but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. All right, he hollered. You're going to get a lesson. He himself for a rush at me. A split second before he could move, someone shouted, Hey! It was ear-splitting. 
I remember the strangely joyous, lilty, lilting quality of it. As though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something, and he suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left, the drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his 70s, this tiny gentleman, sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed delightedly at the laborer, as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in an easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk with me. He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clacking wheels. Why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimeter, I'd drop him in his socks. The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking? He asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake. The laborer bellowed back. It's none of your business. Flex the spittle spattered the old man. Just checking our time here. Okay. That's wonderful, the old man said. Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out into the garden and we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree and we worry about whether it will recover from those ice storms we had last winter. Our tree had done better than I expected, though especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. It is gratifying to watch when we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening, even when it rains. He looked up at the laborer, eyes twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fist slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said. I love persimmons too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling. And I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer. My wife died. Very gently, swaying with the motion of the train. The big man began to sob. I don't got no wife. I don't got no home. I don't got no job. I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks. A spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn. Standing there in well-scrubbed, youthful innocence, by make-this-world-safe-for-democracy-righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, he said. That is a difficult predicament indeed. Sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy, matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could speak about the resolution of conflict. Such a beautiful story, and it's told with such, you know, honesty and truthfulness. And, you know, as embellished as it is as a story, you know, for the purposes of drawing out the contrast and the drama, the elements are there, uh, and they speak for themselves. 
And, you know, we've seen this over and over in our in our own lives. The gentle strength of our grandfather or our grandmother to soothe us when we're angry or upset. The wisdom, you know, the, the strength of that life experience and that longer view. I remember a very, very funny routine with Richard Pryor where he's doing one of his two of his characters actually, these two old guys sitting on a bench and they're talking about life and, you know, complaining about being old and complaining about young people being, you know, uh, imprudent and and rude and disrespectful. And the one guy says to the other guy, you know, you don't get old by being stupid. <laughs> so the protection of life really starts with the protection of our own life to be able to survive and make it through life. But in doing that, you get to know yourself and hopefully you start to soften. And certainly, O-sensei, later in his life, very dramatically so after the war, and the Aikido really shifted from its martial origins to this powerful but soft bearing and fluidity to really come from a spirit of love and, and harmony and uh, compassion. So I hope that leaves you with a lot to think about as you go about your day, to take that into your own conflicts, to really understand what's going on for the other person, to think of the other person rather than think of what's going on for me. What do I need out of this situation? What can I give the situation to help the situation? It's a more difficult question, but it's one that brings a much more fruitful answer. Well, that's been the Mind Whisper for today. I hope you enjoyed the program. Tune in again and take care. <laughs>